Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Guess what, Gabe? What's that, Mango? So I was looking online and I stumbled into Michelangelo's grocery list. <laughs> well, I already like where this is going, so... Uh... <laughs> Tell me, what what do I need to buy to be on the Michelangelo diet? Well, a lot of bread and a lot of fish, apparently. And being a genius, he didn't write out his list for others to do his shopping. Instead, he mostly drew it. So on a scroll, you might find, like, uh, two bread rolls or a herring. Like, he'd draw the specific type of fish he wanted. Also, he'd have these, like, gloriously plump bowls of salad and anchovies. And sometimes he'd draw out the preparations. Like, if he wanted fennel served a certain way, he might draw stewed fennel. And for wine, he'd draw, like, not just a small jug of wine, but also he'd place that next to a larger jug of wine. So to be clear, he wanted two jugs of wine always. <laughs> okay. Well, good thinking. But, I mean, he was Italian, so what about pasta? Did he draw out all the different noodle shapes too? Well, weirdly, he wrote the pasta out. Like, maybe he didn't feel like his sketches did pasta justice, but uh, <laughs> reading about Michelangelo's grocery list got us interested in the birth of the grocery store. Like, how did these shops evolve into the supermarkets we know today? What innovations have they brought into our lives? And why are they always trying to manipulate us? So that's what today's show is all about. Let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Mangesh Shatigler, and my good pal Will Pearson is off on holiday. So instead, I've got the wonderful Gabe Luzier here on the line with me. How are you doing, Gabe? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you too. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, trying his hand at the fine art of citrus stacking, that's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. And Gabe, I know you can't see it, but this is a mighty fine pyramid of oranges he's got going on over here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll I'll take your word for it. But I mean, you know, what's funny is that Johannes Kepler, he was the first person to suggest that a pyramid was the best way to stack 3D spheres. 
you know, stuff like cannonballs or oranges. And this was way back in 1611, but sadly, Kepler was never able to prove his theory on paper. Uh But in 1998, a university student named Thomas Hales, he took up the challenge and he published a 300-page proof on Kepler's behalf. But Kepler was absolutely right in the end. Like, pyramids really are the best way to stack your spheres. I can't believe you brought this back to Kepler, but I do like how it took four centuries and 300 pages of paper to, like, confirm how to best stack fruit. And meanwhile, like, grocers have known the right way to do this all along, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Over the years, grocery stores have grown into a complex and carefully tailored industry. And I was looking to this, you know, today there are roughly 38,000 grocery stores in the U.S., which together bring in about $670 billion in sales each year. So with that in mind, I I thought we should take a look at the enormous role supermarkets have played, not only in our economy, but in the development of our society as well, from how they've upended the way we shop to all the little and subtle ways they manipulated us. So I thought maybe, Gabe, you should kick this off. Sure. So uh, I I thought we could start by tracing the evolution of grocery stores and sort of charting all the ways they've gradually changed over the years. And so the roots of modern grocery stores in the U.S., they really lie in the small regional chain stores that started cropping up during, uh, during the early 20th century. And these early grocery stores were much smaller than what we're used to. They, uh, they typically were less than 1,000 square feet. And, of course, that also meant they stocked much fewer products. And, in fact, stores of this era, they typically carried only one type of grocery. And these were the so-called dry groceries. So things like canned goods, spices, and other non-perishable stuff. Right. So there was no produce, no meat, no dairy, none of that stuff. Nope, nope, none of that. This was uh, still a time when customers had to visit a number of separate specialty shops in order to get every item on their list. So you'd head to the grocery store for your dry goods, but then you'd also stop off at the butcher shop for your meat, a green grocer for your produce, a creamery for your milk and butter, and so on. I mean, really, if you think grocery shopping is a hassle today, back then it was an all-day affair. You know, that's actually how it was in India when I'd go there as a kid. And I mean, it wasn't all day, but it definitely took a few hours. And it used to be so fun to go to the market because my grandmom actually knew each of the like shopkeeps and she'd ask about their families and their days. And then she'd love haggling with them. And it's more like our relationship to the farmer's market, you know, that we go to every Sunday. But now my family in India just goes to like a supermarket just the same way we do in the States. And You know, it's much more efficient, but it's also, it feels so much more anonymous and and less personal. I I really miss that. But, you know, thinking back about the U.S., I I guess the one-stop shop supermarkets that we're used to really weren't a possibility until things like refrigeration or whatever became more mainstream, right? Yeah, exactly. But that's not to say that, you know, there weren't plenty of grocery innovations in the meantime. For instance, one of the biggest shakeups came in 1916, and that was when an entrepreneur named uh, Clarence Saunders, he opened his first Piggly Wiggly store in Memphis. <laughs> and uh, and Saunders' store, it was special because it introduced America to the idea of self-service shopping. I mean, it's weird to think about now, but old-style grocery stores were set up to have the clerks do all the shopping for you. So customers would hand over a list of all the items they wanted, And then one of the employees would move from shelf to shelf, bagging up the different items as they went. But in Saunders' new do-it-yourself style store, the customers collected all the items themselves for the very first time. 
I mean, it's funny because you have things like Instacart and that's basically sending people a list to do your shopping for you. But (laughs) it's like full circle. (laughs) I am curious, like how did customers take to that new approach? Like, did they like the independence or did they miss being waited on? There was a mix of reactions. There were reports of confused customers who would flag down stock boys to fetch items for them, only to be told that wasn't how things worked at the Piggly Wiggly. (laughs) So, you know, there was a bit of a learning curve. But for the most part, people took to the new self-service style pretty well. And a big part of that was just how much faster the do-it-yourself system was once people got to know the layout of the store. And, of course, it also helped that the prices at the Piggly Wiggly were lower. And that was due to the fact that the store didn't have to employ an army of clerks. So in the end, you know, customers responded so strongly to the store that within a year of its opening, there were already nine Piggly Wiggly locations around the Memphis area. Oh, wow. And Saunders was so pleased with his store's success that he actually made a pretty lofty prediction to the people of his hometown. So he said, quote, one day, Memphis shall be proud of Piggly Wiggly, and it, sh- <laughs> and it shall be said by all men that the Piggly Wigglies shall multiply and replenish the earth with more and cleaner things to eat. <laughs> so ridiculous. So I actually have this total fondness for the Piggly Wiggly because that was the first grocery store I went to when I moved to Birmingham, Alabama, and this was back in the early 2000s. And in fact, Will's dad told me, like, you'll know you belong here once you start referring to it as the pig. which is what I refer to it as today. But, you know, the company is still going strong today, right? I mean, I know we've got a couple here in Georgia, and I feel like I see them across the South. Yeah, I checked their website. We we don't have them out here in California. And apparently Uh there are over 500 Piggly Wigglies spread across 17 states. So, yeah, I mean, I'd say Saunders left Memphis with, you know, a lot to be proud of. So was it just this uh, self-service aspect that Piggly Wiggly, like, game-changed in this industry? Or, or I, I feel like because of their name, were they the first one to add a meat counter as well? Well, that would make sense, but no. Piggly Wiggly was always uh, just a dry goods grocery store, at least back in those early days. So I, I'm curious then, like, why did they call it Piggly Wiggly, like, if they didn't have a meat department? Well, it's honestly kind of a mystery. Like, according to Piggly Wiggly's own corporate history, Clarence Saunders was, quote, curiously reluctant to explain its origin. One story says that while riding a train, he looked out his window and saw several little pigs struggling to get under a fence, which prompted him to think of the (laughs) rhyme. But on another occasion, someone asked Saunders directly why he chose such a strange name And he said, so people will ask that very question. (laughs) Well, I mean, I I like that he was like, I guess, just trying to create something memorable or like a memorable brand, which I guess makes sense if you consider the time frame. Like this was the 1920s and customers suddenly had more decision making power, right? I mean, food companies started placing a bigger emphasis on packaging and taglines and you started seeing mascots coming about like these were all new ways that companies came up with to sort of make their products stand out from the competition and also just better grab the consumer's interest yeah that's right and saunders actually got into this kind of supermarket psychology as well since his customers were free to wander the store he had to think carefully about the appearance and layout of that store Mm -hmm. and this led to all kinds of supermarket staples like employee uniforms and uh, shopping baskets so customers could carry and ultimately buy more items at once. 
though obviously these early baskets were made of wood rather than plastic. But, uh, you know, that said, while many of these breakthroughs are credited to Saunders and his Piggly Wiggly stores, that doesn't mean some of the same ideas weren't being experimented with by other stores around the same time period. Yeah, I mean, obviously this is a tough thing to pin down definitively, but when I looked at the timeline, it, it does seem to support Piggly Wiggly's claim as the first modern supermarket, at least in terms of like offering self-service the way you expect now. Well, we've actually been a little loose with our terms so far because uh, the early Piggly Wigglies, they weren't technically supermarkets at all. So why is that? Well, at the time, they were actually referred to as Grossitarias. <laughs> and I, don't, I guess it's Grossitaria, Grosh, Grosh-itaria? <laughs> well, However you want to pronounce it, I like <laughs> it. <laughs> And, and that's because the setup of walking through a turnstile and, and grabbing what you want one item at a time, that reminded people of the cafeteria-style eateries. And, you know, for a grocery store to truly be a supermarket, it has to have that variety of products and services that we talked about earlier. In, in that case, like, who gets the crown for being the first supermarket? A lot of people would argue that America's first supermarket was actually the King Cullen store that opened in Queens in 1930. It was uh, founded by a, a former Kroger and A&P exec named Michael Cullen, and it was set up in a warehouse with most of the food being sold straight out of the shipping cartons. So it was no frills, to say the least, but it had all the makings of a supermarket under one roof. Dry goods, produce, meat, and dairy. And, I mean, it's easy to imagine how things went from there, right? Like, I'm guessing once the regional grocery chains were able to marry that all-in-one supermarket approach, with their knowledge of store layouts and branding, that really feels like when the modern supermarket was born. Definitely. And it was at a pretty perfect time, too. During World War II, thousands of small self-service grocery stores were forced to close because the few employees they had all went off to war. But for a well-staffed supermarket, the loss of a few employees wasn't the end of the world. And that made the business model a lot more attractive to the food industry. Then, by the 1950s, a huge chunk of the population had relocated to suburbs. And, you know, this was all in the post-war boom. So families were bringing their new refrigerators and cars with them. And once the national highway system was in place, stores could receive shipments as often as needed. And that's when everything truly started clicking for supermarkets. So it's funny. I was reading the story in time about how in the 50s and 60s, it was kind of a golden age for supermarkets for all the reasons you just mentioned. And it talked about how supermarkets were this uniquely American phenomena. Like apparently the U.S. Information Agency even touted supermarkets as a symbol of the American way of life. <laughs> oh, wow. And uh, that, that was because of the level of variety and also the sheer abundance of food you could find under one roof. And it's funny, actually, supermarkets were such a draw that in 1957, when Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip visited President Eisenhower, they actually spent 15 minutes checking out a grocery store in Maryland just to see what all the fuss was about. <laughs> wow. So uh, what did they think? Well, according to one source, the Queen was bemused by the grocery cart's little collapsible seat, saying, quote, it is particularly nice to be able to bring your children here, which, I mean, is actually a great point, like, and something I hadn't thought about because, you know, having gone to markets in India, I'm sure I was such a pain to shop with. Like, they'd have to drag me to, like, eight different stores or I'd wander off. And 
if you had to do that all the time, it'd be so annoying to shop with your kids. And, and obviously, this is a much better experience for parents. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point, especially considering how much nostalgia is wrapped up in grocery store shopping, at least for most people. Like, who doesn't remember trying to decide which colorful box of cereal to sneak into the grocery cart? (laughs) It's crazy, you know, for me to think that kids who grew up in the U.S. even less than a century ago wouldn't have had those kinds of experiences. I mean, it really makes you thankful for the inventor of the shopping cart, I guess, who, of course, we all know was uh, Sylvan Goldman. (laughs) Shout shout out to Sylvan. I like that you knew that off the top of your head. <laughs> I've got it in my notes as well. He's the owner of the Humpty Dumpty supermarket chain in Oklahoma. You know, uh, of course, the cart was a total innovation. But if you don't mind, there's actually another piece of supermarket tech I'd love to talk about. And it's a humble little strip of black and white lines known as the barcode. All right. Well, I'm always up for a good origin story. But first, let's take a quick break. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the rise of the American supermarket. So, Gabe, I thought it'd be a good time to shine a spotlight on what's maybe the most unsung hero of the supermarket, the barcode a.k.a. the Universal Product Code or the UPC. And UPCs are obviously important because they allow a store to keep track of its inventory and easily pull up information on each of these uh, items that they sell. But, you know, today we're so used to this system that it's pretty easy to forget not only how revolutionary this idea was, but also just how necessary it became to the growing grocery industry. Hmm. And, And so what makes you say that? So when these all-in-one supermarkets became the norm in the U.S., stores actually began stocking more distinct items than ever. And, you know, keeping track of all of this became a logistical nightmare. And that's without factoring in how hard it must have been for cashiers at the checkout lanes, right? Like, I mean, they had to look up the prices on, like, hundreds or even thousands of different items. Okay, yeah, I see what you mean. But, I mean, it's wild to think about, but uh, that King Cullen store I mentioned, the, the first supermarket— 
it only stocked about 200 different items. And that was considered a pretty extreme level of variety for the time. Sure. But, you know, you fast forward to today when the average grocery store stocks something like 40,000 unique items. I mean, there's just no way we could manage, you know, that kind of inventory without barcodes. And of course, now we use barcodes for just about everything, not just groceries. Exactly. Have you actually seen those uh, early Mad Magazine covers when they first put barcodes on the covers? No. What was this? So, like, the editors absolutely hated that they had to put barcodes on the covers, so they treated each one like a revolt. And, like, um, on one cover, they had this, like, extra large barcode just to jam the system. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and they had one that was, like, overgrown, and Alfred E. Newman was, like, trimming it with a lawnmower, like one of those push mowers. <laughs> and, you know, they hated the thing because it ruined their pristine covers, but... Obviously, the supermarket industry is where the whole thing started in the 40s, and it made tons of sense for them. Like, just over a decade into the existence of supermarkets, grocers were desperate for any way to get customers through their stores more quickly. One store manager in Philadelphia even went looking for help at uh, Drexel in, in Philadelphia to see if they had any ideas. And while the dean ultimately turned the guy away, word of all these grocery store troubles caught the attention of this student named Bernard Silver, who was enamored with this idea of helping the grocery store industry. And uh, he recruited a friend, this inventor named Joe Woodland, who was at a graduate school at a different college. And I guess Woodland just jumped on this challenge. He even dropped out of school to focus on it full time. Oh, wow. That seems like kind of a risky move. I mean, Mm -hmm. you'd think he'd at least want to stick around campus, you know, just to uh, have access to like the you know the school's labs and resources and stuff like that. Yeah, so I I was thinking the same thing, but you know, actually being away from school helped Woodland. So after quitting school, he moved to his grandfather's apartment in Miami Beach, where he could live rent free. And it was during this getaway, while he was sitting right there on the beach in 1949, that Woodland had an epiphany. So he thought about Morse code, which he'd learned in the Boy Scouts, and soon he was actually drawing the lines of the first barcode in the sand with his fingers. And when Woodland reflected on the event years later, this is actually what he said. Quote, I remember I was thinking about dots and dashes when I poked my four fingers into the sand and, for whatever reason, I didn't know, I pulled my hand toward me and I had four lines. I said, golly, now I have four lines, and they could be wide lines and narrow lines instead of dots and dashes. Now I have a better chance of finding the doggone thing. <laughs> well, I mean, it sounds like he found it all right, but <laughs> I mean, wait, don't don't you need a laser to read a barcode? Because I'm pretty sure there weren't any lasers in the yeah, uh, 1940s. Back in the 40s. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, I mean, Woodland and Silver didn't let that stop them. So back in Philadelphia, they built this prototype of the system. I, I guess Woodland envisioned it on the beach. And it was the size of a desk. And it used this 500-watt uh, light bulb and an oscilloscope to read the code. And as you can imagine, the device didn't work all that well. Like, the idea was sound, but, you know, it was a couple of decades ahead of what the technology allowed for. So they had to just, like, sit on the idea until lasers came on the scene? Yeah, pretty much. And even after the laser was invented, and this would be in the early 60s, there was this long period where people were terrified of lasers because I guess they thought they might be some kind of death ray, which <laughs> I guess technically they can be. But yeah, right. uh, the, the idea of installing them at every checkout lane in America wasn't super popular. And finally, these opinions shifted in the early 70s, and that's when this research team at RCA dusted off the idea for the patent that uh, I guess Woodland and Silver had, and they set to work. But 
to be clear, this wasn't the rectangular barcode you see today. So the idea Woodland and Silver had was, I guess, this bullseye-shaped design, which they thought would be better because it could be read accurately from any angle. And while RCA did test the bullseye barcode, all those concentric circles were actually difficult to print without a lot of imperfections, apparently. So uh, whose idea was it to go back to the rectangle? So the final design belonged to this uh, IBM employee. I guess his name was George Lahr. Um, Although Joe Woodland was actually working at IBM at the time, and he helped push for the company to take up the challenge. And this was no easy task because during all this time of trial and error, the industry had actually formed a symbol selection committee. Like they had their own strict requirements for what a UPC should be. Oh, wow. I'm kind of surprised to hear the grocers were like so organized and, and picky about that. Mm-hmm. Like, I would have thought they'd take whatever they could get by that point. <laughs> so that's what I expected, too. And I think grocery store owners would have been happy with what they would have gotten. But the committee also included manufacturers who were totally resistant to the idea, partially because they were worried about the extra cost and all the inconvenience of having to print a code on every cardboard box or tin or whatever. But After four years of back and forth, the committee finally came to this agreement, and according to Smithsonian, these are the requirements they settled on. So I'm just going to read them to you. It had to be small and neat, maximum 1.5 square inches. To save money, it had to be printable with existing technology used for standard labels. It had been calculated that only 10 digits were needed, the barcode had to be readable from any direction, and at speed. There must be fewer than 1 in 20,000 undetected errors. So they were pretty specific. Yeah, that that does sound like a pretty tall order. But, I mean, I'm guessing IBM's rectangle code fit the bill, right? Yeah, and in the end, about 90% of the committee said that they had high confidence in the symbol they chose. In fact, the barcode worked so well that less than a year after its selection, the code was ready to be rolled out to actual supermarkets. And the very first to test the new technology was the Marsh Supermarket in Troy, Ohio. It took place on uh, June 26, 1974, and the very first item marked with the UPC was scanned there. And because this was such a historic event, we actually know all about the transaction. Like, the first shopper was this guy named Clyde Dawson, the first cashier. The person who actually scanned the item was a woman named Sharon Buchanan. (laughs) Well, she's a true uh, pioneer, I guess, of the (laughs) checkout lane. But I'm curious, what was the item? So we actually know that, too. It was a pack of juicy fruit. And supposedly the gum was picked on purpose because Wrigley's had actually helped to figure out how to print a barcode on something as small as a pack of gum, which I guess had been this major concern during the development. So choosing the gum was kind of a way to show off how well the UPC technology worked. Well, well, and as a way to say thank you to Wrigley's, I bet, right? Yeah, definitely. Well, it's kind of sad to me that it wasn't Woodland's design in the end. Yeah, but I I mean, think of what a thrill it must have been for him to see the idea come to fruition. Like after all those years, it was like, what, 20, 30 years in the making. And because Woodland lived until 2012, he really got to see like how much his invention transformed the whole face of modern society. Well, I guess that is a pretty great consolation prize when you (laughs) list it out. But, you know, barcodes aren't the only supermarket staple that's easy to overlook. In fact, there are all kinds of subtle tricks and invisible design choices that grocery stores use to get us to spend more time and hopefully more money inside of them. So before we close out the show, what do you say we try our hand at a little supermarket psychology? Oh, I'm all for it. But before we get to those, let's take another quick break. Live Nation presents Concert Week. 
Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years, and not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay, Mango, so let's pull back the curtain on all the mind games our favorite grocery stores are playing with us. <laughs> we talked a little in the first segment about how Clarence Saunders' self-service approach to shopping really forced owners to think carefully about their store's layout. And now, more than 100 years later, the grocery industry has gotten layout down to an exact science. And it's a science that just about every store follows. Like, think about where you shop. Chances are the first things you see when you walk through the doors are flowers, produce, and baked goods. And all of that is meant to enhance the store's image by dazzling your senses with freshness, bright colors, alluring smells. On the other hand, all the quick trip, grab and go items like uh, milk, eggs, cheese, yogurt, those are stocked about as far from the entrance as you can possibly get. And that inconvenience is on purpose. It's so that shoppers will have to walk the full length of the store past all kinds of tempting items that they really didn't come there for. Here's another thing I I was surprised to learn, and that's just how predictable our walking patterns are. So, you know, American shoppers tend to shop counterclockwise, so um, clever grocers make sure their primary entrance is always on the right. And this turns out to be a really smart business practice. Because studies have shown that grocery stores that go along with our counterclockwise inclination actually make more money than stores that have their entrances on the left or in the center. That makes sense. It also helps that 90% of us are right-handed. So that makes it so that when we're moving counterclockwise through a grocery store, we're always closer to the shelf, which puts us at prime grabbing distance. (laughs) So that really works? Like we, we buy more just because items are easier to reach? Yeah, according to one study I saw, stores that switched to this kind of layout saw, I guess, a sales increase of 7%. And apparently this doesn't work everywhere. Like, studies have shown that British, Australian, and Japanese shoppers prefer going clockwise through a store. Hmm. So it is possible that it just comes down to which side of the road you're used to driving on. Like, if you drive on the right, then you tend to stick to the right side in other situations as well and vice versa. 
Wow. We really are creatures of habit, huh? Mm-hmm. But I mean, speaking of driving, you know those rumble strips on the side of the road, the the ones that let you know if you're starting to drift into another lane or something? Uh-huh. Well, grocery stores actually use a similar idea to grab customers' attention and get them to slow their roll while shopping. And they do this by using small floor tiles throughout the store. This way, if customers push their carts too fast, the constant click-clack of the cart's wheels hitting the grooves will make them you know, self-conscious. So suddenly, a shopper who just wanted to get in and get out feels like they're racing around the store and making a lot of noise in the process. So instead, they'll slow down, take their time, and hopefully find an extra few items they otherwise would have sped right by. Which is so devious. And of right. course, there are other ways that grocery stores play with our sense of time, too. Like, you know, just like shopping malls or casinos, like supermarkets rarely have windows or clocks. And the thing is, without these easy points of reference, you know, you lose track of time, you spend more time there, you stay longer. And the thinking is, the longer you stay, the more you'll spend. Another common tactic is to play background music so shoppers are relaxed, you know, their pace to match the tempo. And it seems like such a small thing, but studies show that customers spend up to 34% more time shopping when there's music being played. But the weird thing is it really does translate into more sales as well. Like in one famous study, this is from uh, 1982, fast tempo music up to stores average gross sales by $12,000 while slow tempo music made the figure jump to nearly $17,000. Well, I mean, that definitely explains why I hear so much Kenny G when I'm shopping. (laughs) (laughs) Just keeps you in the store for that much longer. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) And, and, you know, so, so far we've talked about, you know, ways that supermarkets try to influence how much we buy, but I do want to switch gears and talk about a way to reclaim at least a little bit of control. And this comes from a study by this research team out of uh, Erasmus University in the Netherlands. And they wanted to determine if there was any correlation between making impulse purchases and shopping with either a cart or a basket. So what they did was to covertly observe 136 randomly selected shoppers in a supermarket. Some of them uh, used shopping carts, some used grocery baskets. And then the team examined each person's receipt to see, like, how many of um, these, I guess they're called vice products, how many of these vice products they bought. So this was typical junk food like cookies, candy bars, etc. And what they found was that those who shopped using a grocery basket were actually seven times more likely to buy unhealthy treats. And amazingly, this held true even when the researchers factored in stuff like how long a person spent in the store, how many products they bought, like how much money they spent. Like no matter how they crunched the numbers and looked at them, the basket shoppers were considerably more likely to give in to temptation. Wow, that, that really is just so bizarre. Like, mm-hmm. I would have thought that cart pushers would make way more impulse buys, you know, since they're the ones with a bigger space to fill. Like, I remember hearing uh, that when Whole Foods doubled the size of their shopping carts a few years ago, customers started buying 40% more food on average as a result. So you, you think, uh, you know, if you have a cart, you'll fill it. So I, I thought the same thing, but, but here's what's weird. So the researchers at Erasmus actually think it has to do more with the physical movements than the amount of space in a cart or a basket. And this is something that goes back to this concept called embodied cognition. Uh, it's basically the idea that bodily sensations strongly impact our thoughts and our emotions. So in this case, the simple act of flexing your arm to pick up a grocery basket might be enough to trigger this, like, I want this now impulse. But but why is that exactly? Like, what does flexing your arm have to do with impulse <laughs> control? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd wondered why it was different from, like, pushing a cart, too. There's actually a, a good explanation in Pacific Standard. So uh, here's what the author writes. 
quote, on an unconscious level, extending one's arm is associated with rejecting undesired objects. Conversely, flexing one's arm, which directs motor action toward oneself, is associated with acquiring desired objects. Think of putting a piece of food to your mouth, bringing an interesting object closer so you can examine it, or drawing a lover to your lips. This pattern gets repeated countless times throughout our lives, and in mind-body terms, it creates something of a two-way street. The act of flexing our arm to bring something appealing closer to us morphs into an unconscious belief that an object we are drawing close to us must be desirable. That is so weird, but I know. <laughs> um, once you spell it all out, it does make sense. Like I've heard that uh, old school slot machines, like the ones where you pull a lever, those typically rake in way more money than the ones where you just push a button. And it seems like the same things at play there with the uh, shopping baskets. Absolutely. So if you're looking to curb your candy consumption, definitely go for the cart on your next uh, grocery run. I mean, it's not a guarantee, but at least it gives you better odds. Yeah. Well, what do you say we flex our muscles in a completely different way right now and uh, do that by jumping into the fact? <laughs> I'm for it. So why don't I kick this one off? We talked a little bit about uh, Piggly Wiggly at the top of the show, and for good reason. The stores were bringing in $180 million in 1932, which meant there was room for plenty of imitators. So here are just some of the names that cropped up around the time. Handy Andy, Helpy Selfie, Micker Mac, Jitney Jungle, and perhaps the most shameless imitator of all, Hoggly Woggly. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Well, here's a quick one. Did you know that uh, North Korean spies have to undergo supermarket training? <laughs> like the concept of grocery shopping is so unfamiliar to North Koreans that they need to practice making sure they don't stand out while they're hunting through the cereal aisle. <laughs> so here's a fact I didn't realize about the Trevi Fountain in Italy. Because so many tourists throw coins in, in 2016, they'd collected about $1.5 million just that year. And what they do with it is that they donate it to a Catholic charity who puts the money towards a grocery store for the poor. That's great. Well, I, I like that you had a Piggly Wiggly fact, but I'm not done talking about Clarence Saunders just yet. That's <laughs> because in 1937, he had an idea for a new store called Kidoozle. <laughs> and and I guess that was a play on uh, the phrase, key does all. Oh, that and, common phrase, key does all. <laughs> right? Basically, the Saunders wanted to turn shopping into an arcade game. So every customer got uh, this special key before they were set loose in the store. And then they would put their key into these glass displays with various goods. And they would unlock them, you know, through the case, how many cans or dry items they wanted, you know, of a certain variety. And then that food was delivered to the front by a conveyor belt. So it basically sounds like the set of prices, right? Right. Like <laughs> there were uh, blinking lights and signs advertising low prices and obviously it attracted tons of people. But that was kind of its downfall. The technology just couldn't handle more than a few customers at a time. So there were always tons of quirks like shoppers often got the wrong food that they had ordered and <laughs> conveyor belts were super slow and broke down frequently. And Saunders ended up opening three key doozle stores and he tried, you know, tweaking the system. But eventually they all had to be shut down. It, it was just a little ahead of its time. Oh, I love that idea, and I, I wouldn't mind them coming back. So, <laughs> so uh, there's this idea that for discounted groceries, liberals tend to go to Trader Joe's while conservatives go to Walmart. Mm 
But the reason for this is actually surprising. So uh, according to research from Vishal Singh of NYU Stern Business School, it all comes down to brand name products. Walmart is full of brand names, while TJ's, you know, doesn't have any. And conservatives like the brands, and the brand loyalty kind of makes sense. So uh, according to Singh, quote, these tendencies are consistent with traits typically associated with conservatism, such as aversion to risk, skepticism about new experiences, and a general preference for tradition, convention, and the status quo. Interesting. Well, uh, according to Mental Floss, the expiration date on grocery store meat might be meaningless. So <laughs> as Matt Adams, who, who spent 28 years as a supermarket meat cutter, as he told the website, his employer frequently used nail polish remover to wipe the sell-by date off outdated meat. And when he complained, it turned out this wasn't really illegal. If, huh. uh, if meat is packaged under the watch of federal inspectors, then of course supermarkets can't change the date. But if the retailers butchered and packaged the meat themselves they're technically within their rights to change the label however they want. (laughs) So as the website points out, 30 states do not regulate the expiration dates for most of their items, which is kind of That is so gross. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So the craziest thing to me is how grocery stores actually stay in business. Uh, This journalist, Michael Ruhlman, told Atlantic, quote, the typical grocery store chain operates on a tiny 1% margin. It's a crazy business, and nobody in their right mind would get into it. That's Which is, stunning. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's exactly why they need all those tricks to get you to buy things, right? Like, <laughs> I guess so. Speaking of which, grocers have done so much research on bananas that they actually know what shade you're most likely to buy. It's called uh, Pantone 120752, a.k.a. Buttercup. <laughs> well... I do know that fact, but I like that you ended with a banana fact, and you know how partial I am to bananas, so I am going to give it to you. But uh, <laughs> I'll take it. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for tuning into today's show, everyone out there. You know, we love to hear from you. If you want to send us comments or questions, we're always checking Facebook or Twitter. And if you're feeling particularly generous, feel free to give us a nice review on iTunes. From Tristan, Will, Gabe, and all of us at Part-Time Genius, thank you so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. (laughs) Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, 
or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel... It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.